Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, and this is another episode of the Three Apostates. I'm just gonna we're just gonna jump right into this because we've got so much fun and exciting things to talk about, and because of our mutual schedules, a little bit of time to do it. So, uh, so we're gonna jump right into this. This is uh, Lloyd Evans, a former Jehovah's Witness. Uh, who I have had on my channel many times, and Jonathan Streeter, a former Mormon, or foreman as I like to call them, uh, who's also been on videos on my channel. We have discussed the uh, comparisons and contrasts between our various former uh, destructive cult groups and uh, some of our mutual experiences and ideas about this. And we wanted to uh, do a podcast episode about something that's been pretty relevant and hot in the media with all of our groups to one degree or another recently, and that is uh, sexual impropriety uh, in regards to um, adults and children. And uh, this has been problematic in the extreme for uh, members of these uh, groups of Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. So uh, welcome to the show, guys. So Great to be back, to be here. <laughs> okay, good. So let's go ahead. And what I thought was, you know, uh, there's no shortage of news on this. And, and, you know, people can Google this stuff, look it up, find stories on this. Leah Remini's, uh, I mean, right from the get-go on season two of Leah Remini's uh, Scientology in the Aftermath, we were treated to horror stories of, of sexual assault and liberties being taken with children and in Scientology's C organization, and that same level of nonsense has happened with public Scientologists as well, not just the, the C org, the core group. Um, right. You guys have also, what, what have you seen recently in the news in regards your groups, for those who aren't up to speed on, on this I like we do? I think some, there was like uh, a, there's a, been a, some developments thing. Yeah, yeah, there's been some developments with the, on the witness side. Um, we recently did a Watchtower in Focus episode on my channel uh, dealing with what's happening in the Netherlands at the moment because uh, there's been... Well, here's the thing. When it, when it comes to abuse, uh, sex abuse, and particularly child sex abuse, uh, there's not enough being done by governments, quite frankly. And we've seen a perfect example of that with Scientology, with... Uh, Leah's show blowing wide open this this issue with the cover-up of, of child abuse uh, in Scientology and all the while the uh, FBI the inland uh, the um, the IRS kind of keeps its arms folded and you know you would just think that when there's such compelling evidence of criminality that people would uh, get involved or the government would do something uh, and we are just starting to see the grassroots of governments doing what they should be doing in this area. We saw it with, with JWs uh, back in 2015 when they had the um, Australian Royal Commission right. into institutional responses of, to child sex abuse. And um, that was very damning in its assessment of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, what impact that has on the organisation in Australia remains to be seen because it was just a commission. They were just giving their recommendations and we still need to wait to see for the actual practical effects that's going to have on the organisation. But it at least showed the government taking an interest 
and we're starting to see the same thing happening now in Holland where there has been a, a victims group set up called Reclaimed Voices. They basically uh, gave an opportunity for former Jehovah's Witnesses to come forward and share their stories and they got an amazing 250 plus stories of victims just in the Netherlands. Wow. So, yeah. How, that is, is there a way presence there of Jehovah's Witnesses? What's that? Sorry, Jonathan. Is there a large presence of Jehovah's Witnesses in that country? Um, on a country by country basis, uh, basis, I forget the exact breakdown, but the mm. Netherlands has about as many witnesses as you would expect for a country of that population. And, um, and so, yeah, 250 actually doesn't surprise me based on what we saw in the Australian Royal Commission, where they found when they got the records, they basically seized the records from Watchtower. They found there'd been 1,006 perpetrators with 1,800 victims. So 250 victims in the Netherlands that have come forward so far is, is quite right. um, uh, credible. So the government has, uh, the media got involved. And as a result of the media get, getting involved, the government has got involved. And there's been a fascinating video of government ministers debating the issue. And they are basically horrified at the idea of there being internal judiciary systems that are governed purely by Jehovah's Witnesses. It's that they, they they object very strongly to the the Dutch justice system being bypassed with Sharia like courts. No. Where where abuse can be covered up essentially. So this is something that they're looking into very seriously at the moment and, and basically they're clamoring for a full investigation just into Jehovah's Witnesses. So it's very uh, promising to to see the government actively engaged like that and it would be good if we could see it see that kind of thing from governments like the British government and the American government and the Canadian government Big time. Yeah, I think that the um, you know what we're having kind of a moment in Mormonism where we're identifying some of the key aspects of Mormon culture and theology and doctrine and practice which facilitate abuse and really having an introspective moment. And it's really coming to a head with a man who used to be a former bishop who discovered that there was this issue where religious leaders, the bishops and stake presidents, would talk to children about sexual themes under the heading of worthiness or repentance. And that process where a child would sit in a room alone with, a, with an adult man who was not their parent, who was not trained, who was not a mental health professional, and be expected to answer invasive probing questions about their personal sexual history, their personal sexual practice in a way that breaks down all of the normal barriers of appropriate interactions. And we're finding in a similar way where we've, um, he set up a petition for people who believe the practice is wrong and should be changed. And on top of that, he invited people to share their stories. And the wide variety of stories that we're seeing reminds me of what you're talking about in Holland, where we have people coming forward saying that um, some people talk about the, the shame and the self-loathing that comes from them demonizing practices, like demonizing part of human normal human sexual development, like masturbation. Um, did you say to, it was the Mormon bishop that did this? He's an active Mormon. He used to be a bishop. And right. when you're when you're Mormon, you serve a bishop for a period of time, and then you go on to serve somewhere else. But um, 
he he learned that this was happening he himself this is where because there's not specific training you'll get a mixed experience in mormonism you may grow up with a bishop who would never think to answer, ask these questions and you never experience it or you may grow up where these questions are asked of you and so you normalize that and you say okay well it's normal for a man in authority to take me behind closed doors and to ask me how frequently I masturbate. Or if I confess to them that maybe I got a little hot and heavy with my girlfriend, it's expected that he would ask me questions like, where did I put my hands? Was there penetration? Um, and I think as a man, I, I probably the, what we're hearing from the victims who come forth is that if you're a woman in particular, then it's much more likely that this male priesthood authority is going to ask for the nitty-gritty detail of, you know, exactly how far your sexual sin went. And they justify that within the theology by saying that we have to know the extent of the sin so that we can know how deep and how extensive the repentance process has to go. And so I think uh, one of the important things for each of us to examine is what are the aspects of our theology that fuel the various things that facilitate and enable abuse or that predators can exploit in order to gain access to them. And um, I think one of the brilliant things that came out of the Australian Commission was to identify this concept of, I think they called it clergyism, which is the, the phenomenon where the members of a congregation imbue the religious leader with an inherent trust. And so they are less likely to believe allegations when a victim comes forward and they give them and they, they let down normal boundaries that you would have. You know, like in Mormonism, we call our clergy from just it's almost like a random from people in the congregation. And so you could say, well, would I let the accountant down the street take my child behind closed doors and start probing them about his masturbation habits? The answer would be no, that's highly inappropriate. But as soon as somebody says, okay, accountant, now you're the bishop, then it's like, oh, yeah, that's no problem. Right, exactly. So, you're talking about people who have not even gone to, I mean, if for those in the religious world, I guess there's a certain level of credence and, or credibility or, or yeah. training or whatever with somebody who goes to seminary or somebody who goes to school for this or somebody who's got some kind of level well, of training. And, and I'm not. I don't particularly think that's valid for that kind of activity. But right. some people might think that. But in the Mormon world, that's not even happening. There's, no, they basically they give them a manual. The manual doesn't even talk. These men don't know about the specifics of of how sexual abuse happens, how predators work, and but but the parents. There's this idea that the bishop is the father of the ward. He has a mantle of authority and the people who called him to his calling have a spirit of discernment. And so if you trust that spirit, then you should be able to trust the bishop because God himself called him to that position. And it just leads to all kinds of problems. But what we're discovering with this, it's called the Protect LDS Children Movement. And we're inviting anyone who has concern about religious abuse of children to sign the petition because it's a very clear way to, ex to express that there is something wrong with that. And on March 30th, he's taking all of his signatures. He has over 15,000 now from both former members and active members. Um, he's going to meet at the courthouse steps in Salt Lake City. There'll be a little bit of a press conference. And then um, we're hoping to get about 1,000 men and women and children and people involved in it to march to the church office building and hand them a stack of, of signatures 
so that it takes away their plausible deniability where, oh, we didn't know that this was a problem, because that's what we face a lot is, is people don't know the scope of the problem. And I think that's where the stories that the Jehovah's Witnesses have, the stories that we're experiencing, and maybe you have a similar moment at some point, Chris, where people come forward and they start saying, no, this happened to me. I remember the first season of Leah Ramini's show where I forget her name, but um, the woman who, who talked about her experience when she was 14 years old being abused by one of the people. And if people don't talk, speak out about it, there's this culture of silence and shame and fear that, that makes it so people don't know it's a problem. But what I find fascinating is the comparative ease with which people are stepping forward and speaking out against it in the Mormon church. Because I, I know he's no longer a bishop, but you're saying he's still a Mormon. I oh, can no, tell it's you not. He, he received a threat. He's received an anonymous. Oh, he's already been threatened. Yeah, that said, basically, um, you, you know, you own a business and you need to be ready for your business to get personally hurt and you better look out for your family. And he took it seriously. He reported it, it to the police, half terroristic threat. And uh, he absolutely. Was it, an, was it an anonymous threat? It came from a specific email. And in the ex Mormon community, we have people who have previously been employed by the church to locate people through that method. And we believe we've tracked down and identified the person who sent the email, and he works for the church. Okay. I don't think he worked on church orders. I think he just felt he was going to defend the faithful. And, um, and so that, I mean, it, it's not, he, he acknowledges it's not without risk that he's come forth, but even he's been in communication with active bishops and active stake presidents who say, you know, we support this change. We support putting an end to these, these private sexual worthiness interviews, but we can't speak out because if they speak out publicly and give their name, then they are going to immediately be accused of apostasy, which is what he was himself is, was accused of. And so well, it's a change that has, in Mormonism, change only comes from the top down. And so well, that's what I was going to say. Is, yeah, I, I was just going to say that one of the, the big problems in all of our former religions is the lack of uh, due process for whistleblowing. Yeah. Um, and it's, I don't know what Chris thinks about Scientology, but I can tell you that in Jehovah's Witnesses, if there was an active member who was running a petition to get reform within the organization, he would just be straight up disfellowshipped. There, there wouldn't even be any kind of undercover um, threats, you know, with plausible denial. It, it would just be overtly you're disfellowshipped because exactly. you're... you're you're stirring up trouble. I would imagine there'd be a similar thing in Scientology. Well, that's because y'all's groups are just like, they don't understand the finesse that you need to become a multi-billion dollar worldwide yeah. group that well, can it survive. Does, it, well, it does, it does speak to the fact that Mormonism has become more mainstream, has chilled on a lot of things, and is, is a milder version of a destructive cult in its you know later stages than... Uh, Scientology or Jehovah's Witnesses, which have doubled down on the extremism, whereas Mormonism yeah. has tried to become and has succeeded over the last many decades in becoming more mainstream and uh, less 
Uh, they hired the right PR firms, basically. Yeah, basically. Now, the point Lloyd makes is actually a very good one about uh, the, I think you mentioned the government in Holland and this idea that internal judiciary proceedings are bypassing the actual court systems of these countries. In other words, there's no, the, the, the group itself presents a barrier to, ju to, to standard justice procedures that a country and a government offers, right? Yeah. Um, which is really the, the, the more formal framework that, that in any country in the world where, the, where a judicial system is part of the government structure. Um, I'm curious, does that happen, uh, John, in, in Mormonism still, where there's these internal procedures that, you know, are used and rationalized as to why they sh don't need to go to outside law or however yeah, they I, might frame that? I think we've seen an evolution. Certainly early on, that was the idea. Um, I think with all three of our groups, anytime your group is the group that is going to save humanity and save the world, then it immediately presents a value hierarchy where preserving the good name and reputation of the group is a higher value than anything else. Exactly. So if something comes forward, if somebody comes forward and said, well, this leader abused me, well, we can't hurt the good name of the church, so we're going to handle this quietly and inside. And what I've been uncovering recently as I've been digging into this issue is something that's very alarming to me. And I think as a Mormon, when I was um, in it, I, I saw the Catholic abuse. I saw any other religious abuse. And I'm like, well, we don't hear about abuse in Mormonism because we don't have that problem. But the Mormon church, for its size, generates a huge amount of revenue every year. And we have some people that have been doing digging about um, settlements. And what we are learning is that when somebody comes forward and says, I've been abused, then the church sets their attorneys on it. And before anything is ever filed with the court system, they'll come to a settlement that may be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of dollars. And tied to that settlement is a gag order or a restraining right. order where that victim can no longer speak out about it. And so there's this tip of the iceberg thing where for every case that the, the victim says, no, I don't want a settlement, we're going to trial, that there's many, many more cases where the church has paid out money so that no one ever hears about it and no one can hear about it. And I've been in touch with some victims that there's some pretty big stuff on the horizon where I don't think they're going to settle. And there, there's some things that are going to be very damaging to the church's reputation and really be a wake-up call to parents about the level of trust that they put in the institution. And we're not talking about just children, because when you break down those barriers at the level of the child, once they grow into young adulthood, they're also subject to abuse because they've, they, don't, they haven't learned what the proper boundaries between authority is. So, um, you know, in answer to the question, do we have internal tribunals? We don't have overt internal tribunals, but we have a culture of silence where things that should be brought to the attention of law enforcement in some cases will not. I think we've improved. We've now got the church explicitly saying we are going to work with church authorities, but there is a history in where that has not taken place and where uh, perpetrators because they haven't been reported and they haven't been tracked and you don't tell the congregation this person was a predator, they'll move and they'll abuse again. And that's and, right out of the spotlight Catholic Church playbook. Yeah, yeah. Except in spotlight, the church moved the priests. In this case, 
the individual themselves will just move to a different congregation right. that the leaders don't know their history. But in effect, they have covered yeah. up. Right. Because you know. they've covered it up, more children are going to be subject to victimization because someone was not brought to uh, justice. Right. There's really two issues as far as I can see. There's how do we how do we fix a broke? How do we first identify the problems? And with the problems identified, how do we fix them so that children are protected? That's kind of one side of things. And the other side of things is what do we do about our legacy? What do we do with past victims who were accrued when the system was broken? And because the system was broken, they were abused. And uh, at the moment, Jehovah's Witnesses aren't really doing anything about either. Um, they've had some very specific instructions from the Australian Royal Commission. There are some subtle ways in which they have gradually improved things, um, which I won't go into now, but it's it's basically not enough. And bottom line, they still hold on to the two witness rule. They even released a video where they said, we are never going to change this. And that, that was only recently. That was that recent video you'd posted? Yeah. Okay. Exactly, yeah. So it, it's something they're almost proud of. Uh, they're almost proud of the fact that they get to feel persecuted. Um, they get to feel as though Satan's system is trying to make them compromise on God's law in right. some way. And, and they get to show how tough they are by standing up to worldly governments when they say this is clearly broken. So yeah, the, there's a number of, of, of factors involved. But ultimately, what uh, what Watchtower needs to do, and, and probably with Mormonism and Scientology as well, you need to fix the legacy. You need to make sure that those who were hurt and who were abused have some kind of uh, path for receiving compensation and, and acknowledgement. And sometimes they just want to be listened to, and sometimes they just want an apology, quite frankly. Um, and having fixed that, you also need to make sure that no children get abused moving forward. Big time. I think that uh, that that point of of uh, it, it's a it's a reflection. I think of the us versus them mentality that people will get into. You know that, like you mentioned, Satan's law. I mean, this idea that that the outside justice system is somehow you know run by sinners or something, or doesn't understand, right. or doesn't have the truth behind it. Whatever the excuse or rationalization is, it leads. And the other there's that mentality and then there's the other side of the coin john you mentioned which is protect the image of the church over you know the individual parishioner or member or child even is expendable for the greater good of what our mission is right and and that i think that you it's a utilitarian kind of of system of of ethics right it's the old you know that the greater good the greatest good is yeah. best sort of thing hubbard adopted that uh, for Scientology, and it's and it rationalizes some of the most heinous activity, and covering up some of that activity, you know. And I think those are the two things that go on in these groups, or the 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 the, the structural elements of the groups that that keep this kind of pattern, cyclical abuse. Yeah. It, it's so it's so complicated that with Jehovah's Witnesses, I mean, one thing that you will hear. Uh, as a justification from the leadership is they'll say, listen, we would never tell parents that they can't, they, they give the double negative. We would never say that you can't go to 
the police. Right. Um, but they overlook, obviously, the fact that they should be encouraging parents yeah. to exactly. go to the police. And, th and that's Scientology, um, man. I mean, to, yeah. the, to a T. It's just like, it, oh, no, we're going to keep this in-house because, of course, yeah. you would never want to go involve the WOGs. Yeah. Right. Which it's, is it's pretty. It's very, very clever word games. And, and what it overlooks is, again, going back to this whole thing of culture, is that it's not enough to make it available to parents that they can approach law enforcement. You do need to encourage them to do that yeah. in a culture where they have been conditioned to have absolute total trust in the framework of of internal judi judiciary systems absolutely where they where they've been trained to believe in forgiveness in forgiving your brother where in the case of jehovah's witnesses i don't know what it's like in mormonism but they bring out this uh, various scriptures to say well you wouldn't dream of taking a brother to court would you why would you want to take a fellow brother to court and drag Jehovah's name through the mud when it can all be sorted out through the elders yeah and when and when you have that culture um, so that parents of abuse victims are already thinking, oh, well, I mustn't go to the police. The elders can, can deal with this. Can deal with it's not enough to dissuade them to say, well, I, we're not dissuading them because you've created a culture of fear and silence and confidentiality where they feel terrified of doing it themselves. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, I'll, I think Scientology is probably even more <laughs> blatant about this uh, even than the JWs because in Scientology it's literally a policy of the church that you will not ever take right. another Scientologist to court for any reason uh, yeah. you know it, it is it's called a suppressive act it's the thing it's the sort of thing that'll get you you know disfellowship kicked out disconnected you know declared suppressive however you want to the, the terminology is this you know it, it basically kicked out right it's all yeah. the same and that means, uh, you know, that you're not communicating anymore to your family, your friends, all your former people. So there's a lot of social pressure there. To, That's such uh, a powerful leverage of control. Yes. Um, what we're seeing in, even in just this whole, just this issue of whether or not bishops should be interviewing kids is very fascinating because even among faithful, they go every day, uh, members, You'll find members that look at this issue, read the stories of the victims, and say, "You know what? That's right. I, sh you know, why would I allow anyone to ask my kid these questions?" And so, what we're seeing is that people are reclaiming the the focus of control in their life back to themselves, and saying, "As a parent, it's my responsibility to make sure that this abuse doesn't happen." And so, they'll go to their bishop and they'll say, "You know, bishop, if there are ever any interviews with my kid, I want to be in the room." And, and Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong, but because there is a, there is a slight, um, uh, I can compare things slightly with Jehovah's Witnesses, but uh, because we have uh, obviously judicial committees where when elders are investigating uh, wrongdoing, uh, anything anything goes. They they can ask any question to someone yeah. who uh, I mean I've had I've had I've been on the receiving end of it so I know firsthand the, yeah. the kind of invasive questioning that they will throw at you but in your in the case of what you're talking about you're talking about and please do correct me you're talking about young girls who actually haven't done any, anything at all it's just purely a case of 
oh well it's it's that time in your development as a Mormon where we need to find out okay, just yeah. how how spotless and how how innocent exactly this may not be clear to people that aren't familiar with it so uh, forgive me for making an assumption but in mormonism what anytime you move on to a next level in your advancement you go through what's called a worthiness interview and that's because your advancement is tied to personal worthiness which is how strict you're obeying the commandments as well as in times that you've broken the commandments making sure that you've repented enough so that it's no longer on your record this starts when you're seven years old and you'll be interviewed by the bishop to be baptized and and it's a little bit weird there because the idea is that before you get baptized at that age you're not capable of committing sin because you don't know right from wrong. Um, but we have stories of children who the abuse started at that interview, at that seven-year-old interview. And we're talking about blatant sexual abuse in the bishop's office, on the bishop's desk, using penetration and, and all kinds of things, like the worst type of abuse that you could imagine to a child. And then the bishop said, well, when you get baptized, you'll be forgiven for all of this. And so they're using the the, the oh. theology against the victim, and you can't tell anyone about it because this is a confidential interview. But so oh, the, that's aren't, they, aren't they sick? And they're, and they're doing all this claiming to be men of God. And uh, well, yeah, the hypocrisy predators. is going to be there anytime you have somebody. I mean, these are clear criminals, clear predators right. that are taking advantage of that position. Well, they but, are enabled by a system that puts mm -hmm. them alone in a room and gives them power well, and authority. Exactly. But even yeah. beyond that, you can take a, a man who would never find himself in that position, call them to be the bishop, and now it's his, like, literally responsibility and duty. And people will come to him because they understand it's his responsibility and duty. If you're uh, an attractive young woman who maybe slipped up with your boyfriend, you, in order to get forgiveness for that, you've got to go and sit in the room with a bishop who may you know, just be 10 years your senior or five years your senior, and his job is to get you to give him explicit detail about the nature of your sexual acts. And that has, I think, there have been people who've been put in situations they would never be in who, because they now are enabled, they're like, well, it's, you know, I kind of feel dirty asking these questions, but it's my job. And a lot of women feel, they come out of meetings like that, feeling like the Bishop was was gratifying himself by the extent and nature of questions that they had. It's sexual and, harassment, isn't it? And it, it's, oh, it, it's absolutely on an industrial scale where you know it's and like you it's say, there's going to be individuals who who can't bring themselves to do it, and and good good for them. But whenever there's a loophole that can be exploited by evil men, you can bet that in a large religion, there's going to be a sufficient number who will do precisely that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Per Percentages-wise, it's just going to work out that that's going to happen in any group of any size, no matter what's going on. But I think that we are uh, talking about groups that make it easy yeah. for this to happen, right? Uh, because there is so little oversight, over so little regulation, and so much indoctrination that this group is holy, this group is good, this, everything this group does the entire structure of this group, all the rules and philosophy of this group are all positive and good and, and, and so it can do no wrong. I mean, when you get mm -hmm. to the extreme of Scientology, and I think the Jehovah's Witnesses as well, you have a membership who will not criticize or question or look, or look at 
you know, is this group doing anything? Is, is there any part of this thing that I'm willing right. to acknowledge might be needing correction or need right. something fixed or adjusted or something? Oh, no, everything's perfect. Yeah. And the organization itself will never, ever admit to doing anything wrong. Scientology has not once admitted to any wrongdoing well, well, there's even been, and I think I think there's been something similar with Mormonism. Uh, Jonathan will be able to tell tell me, but um, for the uh, convention that's coming up for Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in Ju in sort of May onwards, 2018, uh, we had some of the videos leaked, and I've I've done the rebuttal on my channel, and on one of the videos, they basically celebrate the fact that in a in a watchtower not so long ago. They basically said that you should obey what the leaders say, uh, wow. whether it makes logical sense or not. So it right. doesn't ma it, 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 even if it doesn't make any sense, you should still just obey it. And in the latest, in the forthcoming convention, uh, you have a scenario set up where witnesses have to show that they're obedient. And when they're discussing it later in an elders meeting, they're saying, oh, well, and this reminds us of this uh, recent Watchtower article. And Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's something very similar that was said uh, by a Mormon leader. I'm sure I saw a video on your channel or somewhere else. Yeah, so I saw that video that you're talking about, Lloyd. And I was yeah. my jaw just dropped. Like they just, it's like you said, they're almost proud of it. Like, yeah, we're yeah. so proud that we're going to completely defer our own conscience and judgment to these yeah. men. And it's almost like the more objectionable it is, then the greater degree of faith that I have for completely submitting to it. Yeah. But I'll tell you, you know, I think in each of our organizations, what's happened is that a, a a poisonous idea has been injected into the concept of morality in the minds of every member. And that is that morality is defined by the priorities of the church and the men who lead it. Right. And in Mormonism, we have that going all the way back to its founder. So there's this there's this. Um, beautiful letter that exists written by Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and it's known as the happiness letter, and it's the perfect Orwellian name for it. But it, um, it is a letter that was written by Joseph Smith when one of the teenage girls that he proposed to be his secret illegal plural wife rejected him and said, you know, that's immoral, that's wrong, I would never do that, how can you as a prophet of God ask that of me? And he said, I'll write you a letter that explains it. And so the letter was then delivered to her, and, and the text of it was preserved. And in the letter, he says, whatever God commands is right, even if it's wrong at, at some other time. And to demonstrate the extremes to which that concept can be taken, he says, there are times God will say, thou shalt not kill. And at other times, he'll say, thou shalt utterly destroy. And in that same letter, it reinforces the idea that the prophet is the man who conveys God's will, and that you must obey the prophet as though you are obeying God. And so it plants the seed that morality is defined by what the prophet says. And so if the prophet comes to you and says, we need to engage in this sexual activity, and it's given the blessing of the Lord because I'm the prophet, then people will consent to it and consider it almost an act of devotion and religious um, piety. And by the same token, in the modern era, if the church says, well, in order to preserve the work, the great work that we're doing, we need to keep this quiet. We need to keep this abuse quiet. We need to keep the fact that this particular leader 
now has a record of abuse quiet to preserve the name of the church, well, then that higher value that defines morality makes it okay. And, and that concept that even the founder of the religion articulated has been perpetuated throughout the years and used to cover up all sorts of things. Wow. So the pattern really goes, you know, in terms of gaining membership and getting them to accede to this sort of thinking is, you know, get them in on some, whatever the pretense is that they come in on, that's probably something that the per person feels personally is going to appeal to them or something, that they become a Mormon or a JW or Scientologist, whatever. Love bombing. Yeah, the love bombing or the ruin finding or whatever it is that, you know, yeah. that, that gets them involved, but then start working them with, you know, start eroding the walls of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of belief in uh, like a justice system or a, mm -hmm. a government or outside groups or something or people in general and start working and that never, us versus them. Yeah. And it's never as explicit as you're talking because I think if people would see it explained like you're like you're explaining it, they say, no, 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 no. But when you do it in soft and gentle terms, when yes. you do it by alluding to the salvation of mankind, by alluding to making good men better and everything, it's it's the softness and, and just the beautiful language that is used that appeals to people and they feel like they're a part of a group, and then you add a persecution complex onto that, and then exactly. you add phobia induction about the outside world, and, that's and all these what other I'm things. That's talking about. That's and, right. And people start to bond together over that, and it becomes such a powerful thing because I don't know if you guys experienced it, but when I went through the process of unplugging myself from that mentality, you have to work your way through each of those mental traps, and you have to be able to understand that you're going to be okay you can still be a good person. You can still have a voice for yourself, even if it contradicts the leaders and feel okay with yourself. And it's, it, that's a learning and a development process that's very difficult at times. I, I saw um, an atheist meme recently, which this is kind of reminding me of. And I forget the exact wording, but it went something along the lines of, um, don't tell me that atheists aren't moral. Um, my morality is the only thing that's stopping me from setting up a religion and exploiting the gullibility of people like you. <laughs> and yeah. you know, that's pretty harsh, but the, the, the truth is that all examples of the way undue influence and cult mind control has been perfected to the point where it just works every time. You know, so long as you can, you know, like you say, get them to a certain point in the sales process, the machinery just takes over. And, and before you know it, there is a stage where they can agree with something as grotesque as even if this doesn't make sense, you should still agree to it. So yeah. these are proven processes. And if either of us were unscrupulous or, or evil or, <laughs> or desirous of making a lot of money for ourselves, we could exploit them. We, we could, we, you know, it might only be on a small level to begin with, but the, the mechanisms are all there. Anyone can use them. It's just that I'm we are all enough. I can just like I couldn't do it. I, I think there <laughs> is an element of charisma to each of the founders of this that is unique to them. I think and 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 then there's a level of like almost narcissistic. Okay, if we had if we had the charisma of if we had the charisma of Chris Shelton, we could definitely <laughs> do this. I think we can agree on that. Well, you know, I was going to say that I have actually joked with uh, an atheist friend of mine at the at, at this meetup, this group I go to, uh, about this exact thing. That, yeah. you know, if we lacked a moral compass, 
it would be easy yeah. uh, because of what we know, yeah. right? Because of what we've experienced. And, and, you know, writing a cult, you know, cult leader 101 playbook, I mean, I could sit down and do that right now. It, it, yeah. it's, it's not we, hard. We have a former Mormon who uh, wrote a book called So You Want to Start a Cult. And he actually goes through and lays out all of this. It's actually a brilliant read that's, um, that I can give you a link for if you want to put it on it. But one of, the, yeah. one of the things that he does that I thought was brilliant is he says, okay, if you want to have control, here are certain scriptures in the Bible that you can pervert and use in order to capture the mind of people that are following you. And then he explains like each different scripture. And you could say, yeah, that has been used by different like Jonestown and um, these other things in order to get control over people. And so there are some dangerous ideas out there that are you can even find in scripture that can be perverted and, and used to control people. Um, and it's, it's predictable. Once you see how the mechanisms of control get used, you can definitely, you can identify oh. it. And if you're unscrupulous, you could use it against other people. That's right. Well, I wanted to throw one other thing out here, um, just in terms of an idea that might uh, possibly be, you know, of use. Um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning about the utilitarian ethics system of uh, the greatest good and how that literally that, that ethics system can be used to justify anything because mm -hmm. greatest good is a completely relative term that, that depends utterly on your point of view. Uh, yeah. as to whether something is good or bad or, or the greatest good or not. And it always is interpreted with our groups and with, unfortunately, with many others, uh, that the good of the group specifically is more important, you know, or is, is, is greater than the good of the individual yeah. member or the outside world. It's not even a numbers game. It always comes down to our group is the most important yeah. thing, right? What about then countering that with the idea that no, you know, the paradigm shift here needs to be that the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many when it comes to questions like this. When it comes uh, are to we like talking a, about abuse, stuff right now? Or you know? are we talking well, about it, you know, it I'm, certainly I'm did confused. occur to me. It's, you know, of course that's going to occur to me. <laughs> I, got, I got Star Trek on my screensaver right now. <laughs> But seriously, like it, the opposite of utilitarian would be that, you know, when it comes down to, and, and I think the philosophy is if this group is hurting individual members for the greater good and, and giving that a pass, that I, I think that whole entire philosophy well, the, should be the irony. The irony is that it doesn't benefit them. It, it's it's the, the gains from secrecy and confidentiality are always going to be short term all you know all you're doing is kicking the problem into the long grass because uh, with jehovah's witnesses what they've done over many many decades of reacting to these cases by saying oh well we need to protect jehovah's organization we need to uh, stop jehovah's name from coming into disrepute uh, by doing that in case after case after case after case all that's happened is that this problem has snowballed to the point where anyone can now go online, type in Jehovah's Witnesses child abuse, and then you have all of these stories that have accumulated. Um, and they're, even, they're made even worse by the fact that A, they were mismanaged at the time, and B, even now in 2018, when it's obvious what the problems are, what Watchtower still won't implement the solutions. Yeah. So this whole idea of, 
oh, well, you know, we need to take a utilitarian approach to backfire because it's the organization that ends up with a terrible, terrible reputation. Right. And I think, Chris, to your point about, um, the, you know, where are the priorities? Are they in the group, the values of the group or that of the individual? For me, a lot of that, when you look at how these mechanisms of control work, part of, you know, the, one of the first researchers who went and started to codify how this manipulation work was Robert J. Lifton. And he was looking at communist China and how, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about these things as cult mind control in a religious perspective, but it's the exact same principles that exist in certain political factions, in self-help groups. And, you know, these, these things aren't confined to the domain of religion. And so, um, and I think in, in any of those cases, once you empower somebody to start to trust their own voice and their own conscience, which means that they can say no to somebody claiming some authority over them, that is the first step to allowing them to unplug themselves from the system, is just Big the time. ability to say no and to retain your own voice above whoever it is that is claiming this, this higher, greater good authority above you. You know, that so might I, well be the exact, bringing it right down to the essence of what would be the question you would ask to determine whether you're in a high control group? Can you say no? Yeah. Can, you know, what are the consequences of saying no? What are the yeah. punishments? What are the penalties? What's the yeah. big stick you're going to get beaten with? But even that, you oh, have yeah. to be aware that these groups are keen on that. And so they'll play with that idea. In Mormonism, we have the idea, um, for example, there was a, a secret recording that a woman recently made of an interview with her stake president. And the stake president was chastising her for not obeying him. And in that conversation, he said, you can disagree with me. That's okay. Anyone, you know, you're free to have your own opinion. You can disagree. But if you don't hearken to counsel, and that, that's coded, loaded language, hearken to counsel means the actual act of obeying your priesthood leader, then you are in apostasy. And so while, you know, to an outside person, outgroup member, they'll say, well, they say you can disagree. That's okay then. They're not controlling people. But when you're in the in-group and you understand what hearken to counsel means, and that, that means when the rubber hits the road, even if you disagree, you still obey. So right. when they tell you to be quiet, when they tell you not to share these things, you know, you have to be very careful that um, these groups adapt and they're smart. They can give great lip service, redefine words to the outside members. So when you're investigating the group and you don't know what the real meaning is, it may seem appealing to you and it may seem benign. But when you get in and you see how things actually work, that's where you'll learn the true nature of the control. Well, the JW advice is even more direct than hearken to counsel. Uh, JWs aren't told to hearken to counsel, they're told to wait on Jehovah. <laughs> Which um, I think the the Book of Mormon musical has a, a good song about this, Turn It Off. Um, yeah. Just forget that you have this issue, just forget that you have this problem and and pretend that you believe. Which Again, it's yeah. just ridiculous. Wow. And in Scientology, what they do is basically take you into a room and, and just, you know, <laughs> mentally beat you until you, right. until you, until have no you choice, uh, acquiesce. Yeah. yeah. They just keep hitting you with L. Ron Hubbard policies and, and word and clearing. And point to all the files. And, point yeah, to all the files they've Security taken checking and pick up yeah. the cans. And now we're going to ask you tough and sharp and pointy questions because you're bucking the system. And therefore, it's on, you know, there's something you're doing that, you know, that is no good. 
and you're not being honest with us because if you were, then you would see the way the things the way we see things, and you would be part of the you know you'd be part of the solution. Right now, you're just being part of the problem, and uh, and we can't have that, right? So. Uh, and then they just work you and work you and work you with that until you acquiesce. And if you don't, that you're out. Yeah. You know, and then you lose all your family, all your contacts. That's right. So we've been talking about child abuse and, and abuse in general. Um, like in each of your groups, what do you guys see as the lowest hanging fruit for what people can do to, um, to have at least some change, some move in a positive direction within the group? It's a tough one with Scientology because the entire structure of 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 it is built to to create and and re reaffirm this mindset. You know, the church yeah. is all and the individuals kind of nothing. It's so it's know. so top down that it's almost yeah. impossible unless you're able to break away from the group. There's really nothing you can do to change things from the inside or anything like not, that. Not not within Scientology. No, it is not a group that is up for change. Uh, there's yeah. no voting process. There is no uh, a procedure for getting feedback from the members as to whether something's working or not. It is, it is the definition of top-down management, you yeah. know. And With Miscavige, uh, you know, is a micromanager. Yeah. So that's uh, and it's a small enough group that they can do that sort of thing. You know, you guys come from groups where there's where there are literally millions of members. My former group. They just lie about millions of members. There never have yeah. been millions of members. So so they've been able to Each you know, member has thousands of thetans inside of them and we can't each <laughs> millions. That's, right. yeah. that's how there's millions of Scientologists. <laughs> Jonathan, that was brilliant. Nobody's ever given that to me before. That is perfect. Okay, there you go. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, Chris is totally gonna use that in future. I videos. am totally gonna use that. Um the trademark Jonathan Streeter. <laughs> <laughs> with with low hanging fruit and and Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, that's actually a good question because the Australian Royal Commission made some recommendations that weren't really low hanging fruit. That that from the mentality of Jehovah's Witnesses are actually almost impossible. So, for example, you really should be having uh, women investigate. And to an outsider, that sounds totally reasonable. And why mm -hmm. wouldn't you have women, especially if it's a female victim? Yeah. What on earth are you doing uh, asking a female victim to talk to three guys about the abuse that's happened to her? And it sounds perfectly reasonable that, you know, at least one of those should be a, a woman. Um, but from the JW perspective, where everything's completely male-oriented and they take very seriously the scriptures in the New Testament about women being silent and... Uh, women doing being the only ones who can teach, it would be an abomination from their point of view to uh, allow women to have any role in the judicial process. So if, if I was going to talk about low-hanging fruit, it would be purely, let's report crime, shall we? I think that's a, <laughs> that's a perfectly reasonable request to make because what you could do then is you could say, listen, either child abuse is a crime or it isn't. And if it, if it's a crime, you need to be reporting it. And once it's reported, you can do what you want when it comes to deciding whether yeah. someone needs to be reproved or disfellowshipped. At least you've done your duty to your community by letting the police do what they need to do. So that's the kind of low-hanging fruit 
on the side of what do we do about future abuse. In terms of past abuse, there's also, again, the issue of how do we compensate victims? And I would suggest there needs to be some kind of uh, um, process set up where victims can go and they can tell their story and be listened to and, and, and not be judged and they can uh, pursue compensation. But the, the obvious thing is that if you're going to deal, be dealing with child abuse, you need to be acknowledging that it's first and foremost a crime. And if you need to deal with it as a sin as well, well, that's a secondary consideration. The thing that boggles my mind just listening to you talk about that, Lloyd, is the same thing we face in Mormonism when we're faced with this question, is that is the leaders are not trained in how to actually interrogate some of the you know, completely sociopathic, manipulative, chameleon-like predators that are out yeah. there. You know, yeah. we've seen story after story where the bishop is like, well, I, you know, I talked to the guy and he says nothing happened. And, you know, and, and he's very righteous. He attends all the meetings. He's, you know, he's been a priesthood leader for so long. And they trust their spirit of discernment yeah. where you get a trained professional who's not allegiant to any religious authority. He doesn't have all the other things clouding his judgment. His job is to identify predators and protect vulnerable populations. Like they're going to be able to pick apart those things. And so you, I mean, even it's almost in the best interest in Mormonism's case of the bishops and the state presidents to say, when I get a, an allegation of abuse, I'm just going to turn it over to CPS and law enforcement because they're the ones that deal with this all the time. They have people yeah. whose job and training is to identify and, you know, perpetrators and, and work with this. Let me displace that question to them, and then they can do their determination. And it's just yeah. so straightforward. Like, if, why would if the Mormon Church sent out a letter tomorrow, and the Watchtower sent out a letter tomorrow to all congregations or you know to all um, priests uh, and bishops, saying, "Listen, the minute you get an accusation of child abuse." First, first and foremost, contact the authorities, and then we'll go through the judicial process. Mm -hmm. If that letter was to go out, or those letters, the the landscape of this issue would change overnight. Oh, there yeah. would still be there would still be issues to deal with. For example, the legacy issues that I mentioned, but at least children from now on are being protected, so that there aren't going to be 10, 20, 30 years down the line uh, child abuse cases popping up with date stamps on them of 20, 2018, 2019, 2020. Let's at least stop things now, and then yeah. we can start to pick apart the wreckage of, of what was going on before we implemented the rule change. We yeah. have and I will now, in Mormonism, when you get a abuse, there's a phone number that you the bishops are supposed to call, and then they'll be in touch with the church attorneys, and one of their jobs is to determine yeah. out you know, is your state make you a mandatory reporter? And if you're not a mandatory reporter, then we're not going to talk about anything. And that right. mindset is so entrenched that we even have a case in Arizona where the perpetrator was eventually discovered. There's a trial in place, and the prosecuting attorney says, we need to have the bishop and the stake president, the local leaders who knew about his state as abuse, testify in court. And the church said, no, 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 there's religious privilege. They don't have to testify. And the district attorney says, no, they need to. So it, that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court dis determined that since he had already confessed to law enforcement, that any ecclesiastical privilege was gone. And so the church was going to be compelled to have the local leaders testify about how they knew it, what they did about it. And rather 
then actually have them sit in a witness stand and be subject to testimony. The church paid out money to the victims and settled the case. They did not you, you, achieve a settlement before that. Based on what you're telling me there, I, I think that the the problem, it sounds as though the, the issue with, with child abuse in Mormonism is pretty much identical mm-hmm. to the, to the, the scale of the problem in Jehovah's Witnesses. I just feel as though with Jehovah's Witnesses, we're slightly further down the line because uh, like the Catholic Church had its spotlight in 2002. It was around that time that two massive uh, documentaries went out highlighting the problem with Jehovah's Witnesses and the lawsuits and, and what have you kind of progressed from there. It really wouldn't surprise me if we could somehow see the figures. It really wouldn't surprise me if if the... Uh, the rate of perpetrating child abuse and the number of victims was proportionate between the two yeah. religions. No, I agree. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And, 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 yeah, I think you see the same right. thing in Scientology as far as proportions of things go. It's just that the report, the, the outrage comes not only from the fact that it occurred, that, that, a, that an abuser abused you know, somebody, especially a child, although this happens with adults as well, um, but the cover-up, you know, they, they, we, we have to keep this quiet. We have to hold this inside. I think this mandate, I think if there's any solution that's sort of popped its little gopher head up above the surface here while we've been talking, it's the term mandatory reporting. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because if it's against the law to not report these instances to the legal authorities and that comes out that they did not do so when they when they were required by law to that would start that would be the sort of thing that would start endangering the church leadership mm. and if they start becoming personally culpable liable legally for what's going on in their organization that they, that they're you know that they're okay with right now they're okay with covering it up because hey it's no skin off their nose they're protecting the church as far as they're concerned and they're they, the leadership is never liable for anything it's you know the perpetrator is rightly so but the leadership gets to go scot free no matter what they do about it yeah so yeah. if they were made legally liable for it maybe that might put a little bit more teeth behind the idea of. You know, because I know we're not going to get anywhere with a philosophic question of, well, you know, is the, you know, the needs of the one or the many or whatever. Yeah. I mean, we can debate that all day. I happen to think that you know, it is true that the individual membership should take some precedence. But yeah. I think we have to put some teeth there to wake this leadership up, you know. I, you I, I honestly think that, sorry, go on, John. No, I just want to finish this thought real quick. When you talk about cover-up, it's amazing how innocuous some of the nature of cover-up can be. So when the Catholic Church scandal broke, the congregants were flabbergasted when it came, finally came out that the church was spending two to three billion dollars a year to settle the cases because that financial disclosure of how much they were paying out in settlement was a barometer of the scope of the problem. Now in Mormonism, we have closed finances. We have no idea how much the church is paying out in settlement. And so just the fact that they are financially opaque actually serves to cover up the nature of the abuse. And so one of our arguments that there needs to be financial transparency is so that if there are settlements, we can understand the scope of the problem. And, um, and so that's one of the changes that I know it's never going to happen, but I'm I'm yeah. hoping that we can start to see. And there have been, as I've been researching 
child abuse policies of different religions now that have all adapted to learning from the Catholic scandal, some of them say we will never enter into a settlement agreement that requires the victim to be silent. Like when I saw that written into their policy, that to me affirmed that they were really committed to the idea of accountability and safety of the victims because covering up abuse perpetuates abuse. Indeed. And, and when we're talking about the culpability of leaders, uh, Chris, the last time I was on your channel, we were talking about the uh, the banning of of religions and the 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 ban of Jehovah's Witnesses in Russia and the fact that Scientology is getting similar uh, uh, attention from the Russian government. And you know, I, I'm firmly of the opinion that you don't you don't go throwing uh, cult victims in in jail cells just for what's going on in their head. What you need to do is you need to pursue the leaders now. Yeah. Even though I strongly and vocally will always be against um, arbitrary action against followers of, of religious movements, no matter what the religious movement is, I do very firmly believe that the leadership of Jehovah's Witnesses should be held accountable for covering up child abuse. And I would actually, in an ideal world, if I, if I got my say in, in how this all ended, I would like, there's currently eight governing body members one was only appointed within the last couple of weeks. Um, the the longest serving governing body member has been serving since 1994. That's Garrett Loesch. I think all of them should receive should receive jail sentences commensurate with how long they have kept the two witness rule in place. I would like to see them actually do time, so that so that the longer you've been complicit in in doing this the longer you you serve time i think that that's that's in an ideal world what i would like to see whether i get to see it or not is another matter entirely yeah yeah well agreed uh, agreed and of course there's nothing i'd like to see more than david miscavige being marched off in handcuffs yeah. uh, you know i i tell you man Scam the day over. that happens <laughs> i'm done i'm so done yeah. you know like woohoo all right well, I would invite anybody who's watching this uh, to give us your suggestions, your ideas. Um, you know, what are what are your thoughts on all of this, and how do you think? Uh, you know, what sort of activities or what sort of rules or guidelines or whatever might action might be taken in order to curb or stop this kind of uh, abusive behavior and the cover-ups that happen as an inevitable result of it uh, with with these groups. So. With that, I think we'll wrap up now. Uh, thanks a lot for being on here, guys. I really appreciate your time. I know it's always a challenge working out our time. This morning was, you guys have no idea, you guys watching, this morning was insane, setting this whole thing up. But we did pull it off, and I'm really glad because I think we talked about some very important issues here. So, uh, so again, thanks for being on, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye-bye, folks.